Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 18 through 26. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 through 26. Please give your full attention to God's Word. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've seen that the book of Ecclesiastes is about one man's search for meaning in life under the sun. In other words, in this created world, apart from any person, God, entity that might be above the sun. If this material world is all that there is, that has been the realm within which the writer of Ecclesiastes, or the, the preacher teacher of Ecclesiastes has been looking for meaning and purpose. The ESV translates him as the preacher, that's the title he gives him. It could equally be given the title professor, and that's the word I use, the title I use for him, because I really see him as a teacher, particularly a teacher of philosophy, a teacher about worldview. This professor is, has already tried to find meaning and purpose under the sun in two major areas of life. First of all, he tried living for wisdom. He was given, as he, he says, the greatest of all wisdom, and he tried to find meaning and purpose by living by wisdom, by gaining great knowledge and then being able to apply that knowledge well to life. But at the end of that search, he said, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, all is worthless. The second major quest that he went upon it was to live for pleasure, and that's what Pastor Owen preached about from the beginning of chapter 2 last week. He tried to pursue the pleasures of this life, not like a hedonist, but by someone who worked hard to build his own kingdom and to enjoy 
the fruits of that kingdom, the pleasures of this world, everything that this material world can give. He enjoyed wine, women, song. He enjoyed great mansions and gardens. He built a great estate and enjoyed everything, music, everything in this life that he could possibly enjoy. And at the end of that quest, at the end of that search, he said, all is vanity, all is meaningless. And so in verse 17, he states his conclusion after his first two quests. So I hated life, all is vanity and striving after the wind. But he's not done yet. He has another quest. And he sets out on the quest to find meaning in work itself. To find meaning and purpose for his life in work. Many people work to live. In other words, work is a means to a a better end. Work is a means by which they can enjoy the pleasures under the sun. And obviously, the professor has already determined that working in order to live for meaning and the pleasures of life is, is a fruitless quest. But what about working for the purpose of finding meaning and purpose in work itself? In other words, instead of living or working in order to live, how about living in order to work? If that becomes the objective of life, is there meaning and purpose in that? And isn't that what we are taught from a very young age that we are to find meaning and purpose in? Get a good career, get a job, get a title, build a reputation, be a hard worker. Be diligent. The people who are really dedicated to the job, those are the people that we admire in life. And so you understand why the professor would look to work as a possible area under the sun that he could find ultimate meaning and purpose. A number of years ago, the Pew Research Center did a study. They just wanted to answer the very simple question, why do people go to work? They came up with three answers based on the research that they did. First of all, People go to work in order to support themselves or their family. In other words, that's another version of they work in order to live. They work in order to provide for their family or for themselves if they don't have a family. The second reason is in order to live independently. People work in order to live independently. We don't want to depend on somebody else. We don't want to live off the charity of somebody else. And that's important to who we are is that we work in order to be independent, to be self-sufficient, to take care of our own life, our own needs. And again, it's another version of working in order to live. But the third reason they came up with is the one I think that is appropriate to the quest of the professor. The third reason that people work, according to the Pew Research Study, is that they work in order to feel like a useful person. In other words, it's important to their identity that their life is useful that we make an impact, that we make a difference in the world. In other words, the third reason people work is that they work in order, they live in order to work, in order to find their meaning and purpose in life. We are taught from the time we're very young to work hard and take pride in our work and to strive for success. One of the first questions we ask people when we meet them is, what do you do for a living? Because we understand that what we do in our work is important to who we are, to our identity, our sense of purpose. That actually, interestingly, 
If you look at the broad scope of history, is a relatively recent Western civilization concept, this Protestant work ethic we have in our culture. Back in the time of the Greek and the Roman empires, back in the time of the first century when the, Jesus and the apostles were ministering on earth, that was not the work ethic of the Roman and Greek culture. The Greek and Roman worldview at the time of the New Testament was that Work is only for the most lowest and despised classes of society. That the goal of life was to not have to work, to be able to enjoy the kind of pleasures that the professor talked about at the beginning of chapter two, to enjoy building mansions and estates and kingdoms and, and being able to enjoy fine wine and, and gr good food and, and great music. That's, and ultimately, the highest, most elite people in the Greek and Roman culture were those who sat and contemplated the big questions of life, the philosophies of the world. And to work was an evil in that worldview. But that wasn't the view of the Old Testament Israelite, was it? That's not what the Old Testament taught. The Old Testament taught that work was good. It's a good part of life. And so the professor coming from that culture, says, okay, well, maybe that's where I'll find the meaning and purpose of my life. But as usual, as we've already seen, that the professor tends to lead with his conclusion. He never leaves us in anticipation. He says in verse 18, I hated all my toil under the sun. That's the conclusion. Now, it's interesting, as you read his reasons for hating his work, his toil. And again, he uses the word toil. That's a good English translation because he's using the word in the Hebrew that has a negative connotation to it. It's toil. Work can be a very positive thing and it can have a positive connotation. But the word toil brings in that negative idea and he hated it when he tried to live for it. It's interesting that he doesn't complain about the kind of things that we complain about in our work. You don't see here any complaints about his lazy co-workers. He doesn't complain about his harsh and unreasonable bosses. He doesn't complain about bad management. And he doesn't complain about boredom. He's much more philosophical. So let's look at the reasons he gives. He gives three basic reasons here for why we cannot find meaning in our work under the sun. The first reason is it's because our work's going to end. Our work will end. It's temporary. In verse 18, he says, I hate all my toil. And he goes on to say, seeing that I must leave it. Your company's going to downsize. Or you're going to get fired. Or you're going to get sick. Or you may die. All jobs are temp jobs under the sun. All jobs. And so the, how can they give ultimate meaning and purpose to life if they're going to end? That's the, 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 the big, deep question that people who go into retirement have to resolve. I've spent my whole life building up my identity and my work, and now I don't work. What's the meaning and purpose of my life? Most of us aren't there yet, and we're just kicking that can down the road. But someday we're going to have to ask that question. Without work, what's the meaning and purpose of my life? I've had to sit through a lot of graduation speeches. I raised five kids. That means I had to sit through five graduation ceremonies, actually more than five, because they had to graduate from college as well. And I had to sit through my own graduation 
ceremonies. And I had to sit through, as a pastor, some graduation ceremonies of people in my congregations. And I've had to sit through, I was on the board of a Christian school, so I had to sit through a graduation ceremony every year. I've sat through a lot of graduation ceremonies. And I'll tell you this, I hate graduation speeches. I don't care how gifted, how eloquent, how articulate, how powerfully the presentation is, the content of a graduation speech speech is almost always mindless drivel to me. Because it's always, one form or another, it's just a a halftime coach's motivational speech. Basically, it comes down to pursue your dreams, work hard, and accomplish great things. I just gave you the three points to almost every graduation ceremony speech. But what I've never heard, even in the Christian school, what I never heard is, what comes after that? Okay, you pursue your dreams, you work hard, you accomplish great things, then what? Never have I heard a graduation speech have as its fourth point, midlife crisis. You accomplish all those things, and what meaning and purpose does life have after you've gotten there, after you've lived the American dream, and you've accomplished in your work everything you hope to accomplish? In the realm of the workplace, you are always going to be evaluated by the phrase, what have you done for me lately? If work is where you're going to find your meaning and purpose under the sun, understand that your whole life is going to be salvation by works. You're always going to have to be doing well in order to be what you want to be and to be what other people want you to be. It's a life of salvation by works and it'll grind you into the ground. Once again, we'll see in this passage the shadow of death covers the whole subject of trying to find meaning and purpose in work. Retirement will raise the question, but death will settle the question, whether there's meaning and purpose in work. Death will take away everything that you've gained through all of your hard work and diligence in this life. All the accomplishments, all the awards, all the reputation you've built up, all the wealth you've put away, it's all empty It's all soap bubbles at the end of your life. It's all gone in a moment. All the investments you've made in the time and talents and treasure, it's all going to be worthless at the point of death. And as we've already seen, anything that you accomplish in this life, any impact you think your life is having, is not going to be remembered long after you're gone. And worse, it may be undone, which brings us to the second point. Not only are we all going to have to stop our work someday, and therefore it cannot give us ultimate meaning and purpose, but someone is going to come, come, come around after you and take over for what you've done. They're going to inherit what you've worked so hard to accomplish, and they're going to have, take on all the responsibilities that you've been working to keep up all your life. Someone else is going to come after you. Verses 18 and 19. The professor says, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled. He's obsessed with this coming injustice, that one day everything he's worked for is going to be handed over to somebody else, 
And that could be a wise person or a fool. And he strongly suspects, as you read this, it's going to be a fool. It's bad enough that death takes away any benefit to all the work you do. Even worse is the possibility that some undeserving fool is going to benefit from everything you've worked so hard to accomplish. He's going to gain control of your resources and your estates and your responsibilities. And he's either going to ruin it, he's going to waste it, or he's going to fritter it away. In the beginning of chapter 2 that you looked at last week, the professor talks about his mansions, his gardens, his vineyards, his, his wives, his precious belongings, his silver, his gold. And here he imagines some lazy, good-for-nothing fool inherits it all and wastes it in a moment. Think about the father of the prodigal son. All that he worked for, he handed over to his foolish son who went and wasted it on wine, women, and song. Imagine how hard that was. I mean, the the scriptures focus on the loss of the relationship with his son and and ultimately the restoration. But it skips over just the father watching everything he'd worked for so hard, being frittered away so foolishly. The ancient pharaohs of Egypt and the noblemen of Egypt, when they were buried in their tombs and in their pyramids, they stacked them high. They had them stacked high with their most precious possessions from all their work and their wealth from this life. They were foolish to think that they could take it with them. I've already told my wife that when I die, please do not take my books my music collection, and my bobbleheads down to Goodwill in big boxes and just set it on the doorstep. Please don't do that. If you have to hire somebody, get somebody who will sell them on eBay so that somebody will buy them who will value them as much as I do. But if that's my highest hope and that's where I find my meaning and purpose, then it's a foolish hope. That's what the professor is saying. Now, we've said that the professor may have been modeled after, if Solomon didn't write the book of Ecclesiastes and model the professor after himself, at least the writer, whoever he is, modeled it probably, at least uh, primarily, after King Solomon. And you think about the fact that King Solomon was given the greatest wisdom that any human being was ever given. King Solomon was guaranteed that whoever came after him to take over the kingdom after him was going to be more foolish than he was because he was the wisest person who ever lived. So you can understand his depression at that thought. But think about who did succeed him. His son Rehoboam came to the throne after him. And he listened to the foolish advice of the young advisors, his young friends, instead of listening to the wisdom of the older advisors. And he lost ten-twelfths of the kingdom. It was true of all the good kings of Israel. If you go through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, what you see over and over and over is a good king is followed by an evil king. None of the good kings. Hezekiah was one of the best kings of, of Judah, but he was followed by his evil son Manasseh who wasted all that Hezekiah had accomplished. We all feel that in our work. I don't know what your job is. I don't know what you're called to do in life. But doesn't it just upset you a bit to think about the person that's going to follow you in your job? I know I feel it. Several years ago, I went back to visit the church that I was at for 19 years. And I had a lot of anxiety 
going to see what I was going to find when I got there. I'd heard good things, which helped me, but when I got there, I just wanted to see that the leaders who had followed me and the elders that were there when I were there, that they had carried on a good work and that they had continued to build on that foundation, that things were going well. That was important to me, and it would have broke, broken my heart deeply if I had gone to find a divided leadership and an a angry, fighting congregation, but man, you see it all the time, don't you? You have one good set of leadership, and then the next leadership comes along and destroys the work of the prior generation. So how can you find meaning and purpose in your work if not only are you going to have to stop working, but there's a good possibility that the people after you are not going to handle it in a wise way? Well, you might say to the professor at this point, well, stop obsessing about the future. You know, the problem is you're just thinking too far ahead. Just enjoy the work in the moment. Just, just take joy in the work that you're doing today. What he goes on to say his third reason that we can't find meaning and purpose in work is that the costs of our work outweigh the rewards in a fallen world under the sun. The costs of our work outweigh the rewards. He's basically saying we can't even enjoy the work that we do in the present because of the effects of the curse on the creation. The cost of doing hard work, the price of that is greater than the benefit of the reward that comes from it. Verse 22 and 23, the professor says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Workplace stress is probably, as a matter of fact, there's studies that have been done to show that workplace stress is the greatest stress that the average person faces in life. One study said this, of all the stress that you bring home or that you deal with in the workplace, 46% is due to the unreasonable workload, 28% is due to people issues, in other words, people you can't get along with at work, 20% is due to juggling your work and your personal life, your family life, and 6% is due to job insecurity. I've often said that if you get a job where you like the people you work with and get along with them well, and the, the, the expectations of your job description are reasonable, that's worth five, six, seven times your salary. I don't care what you're getting paid. Because if you can't get along with the people you work with, and that causes stress in your life, and if you can't deal with the workload, then they can't pay you enough to make your job worth it. Under the sun, we are always day in and day out. Like I said, you're, you're saved by works in the workplace under the sun. And so it's, what have you done for me lately? And every day, we are plagued by the question, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Am I successful? Those questions just gnaw at our soul day in and day out in the workplace. That's what the, the professor is referring to. Have you ever read what Leonardo da Vinci's last words were? I mean, if you ever wanted to look at some person from history and say his life was a success by under-the-sun terms, Leonardo da Vinci would certainly be up there. You know what his last words were? I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. What are your last words going to be? Not only are work days full of sorrow and vexation, says the professor, but we take the stress home with us. Most of us cannot segregate the stress we have on the job with 
our home life. And even, he says, at night when we try to sleep, he says, even in the night, his heart does not rest. I like the way, actually, I like the literal translation there. Even at night, his heart does not lie down. (laughs) Your body stops working, but your heart is still processing, still laboring over these issues. So our work stresses us out until we retire or until we die. And then it's all gone after we're gone. And so he says, this is, this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. But then we get to verses 24 to 26. And I haven't mentioned those yet. And when you read verses 24 to 26, it's almost like somebody cut and pasted that out of the book of Proverbs and stuck it in here because it seems to have an optimistic tone to it, doesn't it? I think that's actually a translation issue. I don't think it's intended to have an optimistic tone. And I've I've worked through this and read a lot of different scholars' ideas on this, but I've come to the conclusion that you have to understand that actually the translation into English is difficult here. There's a lot of difficult words to interpret and translate. And you have to look at the context to see whether it's meant to have an optimistic tone or a pessimistic tone. And I think the context definitely drives us to interpret it in a negative way. Just notice how he starts. He starts in verse 24 by saying, there's nothing better. Now, you can say that in one of two ways. You can say, there's nothing better than this. Or you can say, this is as good as it gets. And I think it's the second is really setting the tone for what he's saying here in these three verses. This is as good as it gets. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. And so it does sound like he's contradicting because he just said that you can't get joy and satisfaction and meaning and purpose from the work in the present. But yet what he's saying here is take, it, take whatever you can get because that's all you're going to get. If, you're, if you're, your evening meal tastes good, enjoy it. Take pleasure in that. But when it's over, it's over. And there's no lasting meaning to it. If you have a nice cold drink on a hot day and it makes you feel good and, and satisfied for the moment, seize the, seize the moment. It's that carpe diem. You're going to actually see this several times in the book of Ecclesiastes. He'll say, in light of this meaningless, what, do you, what I said a couple of weeks ago, he never advocates suicide, which would actually be the logical conclusion to his very despairing worldview. But he doesn't say that. And so this is the only positive he can squeeze out of the reality of meaninglessness under the sun is seize the day, seize the moments, enjoy the, 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 the taste of the food as it goes down, but once it goes down, it's gone. And that's the only positive that he can offer. It's a truism that he's stating about life under the sun, that work is full of toil, work is full of frustration, it's full of pain, it's full of anxiety, And the best you can do is just to enjoy the simple pleasures while they last. I think that's why when we go on vacation from working, a lot of us go camping. Because when you camp, your whole life is about the very simple, basic pleasures of life. You don't have time for anything else because you get up in the morning and you have to spend two hours getting the fire going. And then you spend an hour trying to cook when you don't have all the equipment you need and all the inconveniences of camping. So you take an hour or two to, to make this breakfast And then after breakfast, you've got to clean up, which is a lot harder because you're camping and you're not in your kitchen. And and then you're all done with breakfast. And then 15 minutes later, you've got to start getting ready for lunch. (laughs) And 
And that's kind of the way the day goes. And you might get an hour or so in the afternoon to go for a hike or canoeing, but it's all about the simple pleasures of life. Enjoy the food. Work hard for the food. Enjoy the food while it lasts. Then it's gone. Then enjoy the hike while it lasts, but then it's gone. Then you enjoy supper, and then it's gone. And then you spend, you know, the next three hours getting your kids into their sleeping bags so they can sleep at night and keeping water out of the tent. You know, it's, life is about the simple pleasures of camping. The way I just described it, I understand why a lot of you don't go camping, but... In verse 26, this is the verse that I think we really struggle with. It looks like he's saying, if God is pleased with you, if you're a righteous person, if you're a good person and you do the will of God, then you're going to be blessed, but, and, and, and you will find the joy and the satisfaction, but if you're a sinner, if you reject God, you're going to be judged. That's what it looks like, and if anywhere else in Scripture, that would be consistent with the rest of Scripture, but it's not consistent with what he's been saying in Ecclesiastes. Here's what I think would, have, what would be a better translation. A better translation than the ESV would be to say, the one whom God favors he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but the one whom he doesn't favor, and that's translated sinner in the ESV, but I don't, sinner, and, and linguistic experts will tell you, sinner's probably not the best translation of the word there in the context. The one whom he doesn't favor, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Like I said, he believes there is a God, but this God is distant, and this God is somewhat arbitrary. This God is not intimately involved in our lives, in the, in the worldview, because he's only focused on what's under the sun. God exists above the sun, but he's, almost, he's unknowable, he's distant. And so the idea is that God sets some people up for success, and some people up for prosperity, and some people can have a lot of eating and drinking and being married to their life. But other people, and we, this is just a truism, other people, probably much, much more higher percentage of people, suffer and they're in poverty, and they struggle through life. And he's not giving any reason for difference. It seems arbitrary under the sun as to why one prospers, you know, the evil prosper and the righteous uh, suffer. You know, that's the, the scriptures do talk about that. So he's actually just pointing that out. If God so deigns to give this person prosperity and this person is suffering, then what, what's life about? How do you find meaning? It says, it, he says, that's why he ends up by saying, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. You cannot find meaning and purpose in the work that you do. Even though your family probably taught you that, the culture certainly pounds that idea into you, certainly your, your boss pounds that into you, you cannot find your meaning and purpose in your work. What is the key to meaningful work? The, the book of Ecclesiastes, we're always going to end here because the book of Ecclesiastes is meant to drive us to the rest of Scripture to find out what the true meaning and purpose of life is. And the key to meaningful work is seeing work as a gift from God, a gift of God's grace to us, a good thing that God gives us as a means to loving and serving him. You notice the relational aspect of it. That's what we saw last week when we looked at the houses and the music and the, the fine food and the fine drink. When you know that The purpose of this, the only way to truly enjoy these things and find satisfaction in them is to see them as a good gift from God that draws us back to him in gratitude, in relationship to him. And that's what work is meant to be. The God that we meet in Scripture from the very beginning is a working God. 
He creates. He provides. And he sustains all that he has created. And he reveals himself to us by many different images in scripture. Here are some of them. An artist. A king. A shepherd. A warrior. A farmer. A gardener. A potter. He is a working God. As Jesus said, I am working and my Father is working. That's a moment-by-moment reality that we serve a working God. And this working God found great joy and satisfaction in his work of creation. He looked at all that he made and it was good. He found his joy and satisfaction in this creation that he had made, which brought glory to himself. And then when God created man and woman, he gave them jobs. He gave Adam the job of classifying and naming the animals. He gave man and woman the job of gardening, of keeping the garden, working in the garden. And he gave them the job and the mandate to take dominion over the world, over the earth, under his lordship. But, as we know, man and woman rejected God, rejected that relationship with God, And so God cursed the creation under the sun and work became toil. Work became frustrating and we have to deal with the vexation of thorns and thistles under the curse. But that's not what it was intended to be. We were created in the image of God, which means we were created to be workers from the beginning. If if Adam and Eve had never sinned, if mankind had never sinned, we would still be working because that's what it means to be made in the image of God. We are meant to find joy and satisfaction in our work as it enables us to love God and love other people well. You know, the biblical story, when we talk about the biblical narrative, the story of scripture, we use four terms for it to summarize the whole history of redemption. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Created good, mankind fell, Christ redeemed us by his blood, and he will come again to restore all things to perfection. What's interesting is is that the whole narrative of work follows that same progression. It was created good, sin has put it under a curse, Christ has come to redeem all of life, and one day he will restore work to what it was always intended to be, and that is our hope. Robert Banks wrote a book called Faith Goes to Work, and there's one part of that book that really I found helpful. He's talking about us being made in the image of a worker, God the worker. And what he said is when you look at how Scripture describes the work of God, he divides it into six different categories of work, six different types of work that God does in Scripture. Redemptive work, his saving and reconciling work. Creative work, providential work, justice work, compassionate work, and revelatory work. Now, there probably could be other titles, other categorizations of that, but I found those categorizations helpful. And then what he does in the book, which was helpful to me, is he showed that because we're made in the image of God, we are called to all those different kinds of work as well. And so under the category of redemptive work, he says that's why we have pastors and elders and biblical counselors. Under creative work, that's why he says we have musicians and painters and writers and carpenters and architects. 
Under providential work, we have those who maintain the order in life, the mechanics, the plumbers, the plumbers, the IT workers, the farmers, the businessmen, and the firemen. Under justice work, we have policemen and judges and lawyers and legislators. Under compassionate work, we have the service industry jobs and doctors and nurses and social workers and relief workers. And under revelatory work, we have the professors, the teachers, and the preachers. All work is done in the image of God and to the glory of God. And that's where we find our purpose is in serving and loving God and serving others well. Working to God's glory is what it means to be made in the image of God. It's what it means to be a godly person, is to work to the glory of God and to serve others. If somebody were to ask you, do you work to live or do you live to work? The answer for a follower of Jesus Christ is neither. I do not work to live and I do not live to work. Well, then what do you do for a living? The answer is I live to love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind, and to love my neighbor as myself. And the calling, the vocation, the work that I do is part of that. We live by grace. Any good thing that's in our lives is a gift of God's grace. Our hope is not in our work. Our hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is why we can have meaning and purpose in whatever we do. Our purpose and our hope is in what he has done, not what we do. We do not live for the weekend, and we do not live for our paycheck, and we don't live for our employer. We live for Christ, who bought us with the price of his own blood. We don't work in order to have money, in order to pay for the things that we idolize, and we don't make work itself our idol. Christ showed us where to find satisfaction in our work. In John 4, 34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Or as Paul so beautifully states it, this is one of my favorite passages on work. In Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You notice how he just totally turns on its head what the professor has said about work. Work does not end for the follower of Christ, the one who is redeemed and who will be restored. I fully anticipate that we will work to God's glory for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Work's not going to end for us. The curse will end. The thorns and thistles will go away. The pain and the suffering, the sorrow and the vexation will go away but work will remain as it was always intended to be for the glory of God and the service to other people. Notice that work not only is not going to end, but also there is reward. Our reward is what Christ has promised us at the end. Death will only usher us into the fullness of the reward that he has gained for us at the cross and the rewards for our faithful service under the sun. That's where you get the motivation. That's where you get the joy and the satisfaction in your work. Whatever you do, I don't care what job you do, that's where you find your joy and satisfaction. We are forgiven by the blood of Christ. We are adopted by grace into the family of God. We are heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. That's all ours already, given as a gift to us. 
So that means we are free to enjoy work as a gift, as an opportunity to reflect God's glory, as an opportunity to work with God, and as an opportunity to love others in His name. I'm just going to close with Psalm 127 because it beautifully summarizes the other side of the message from what the professor is saying. Listen to what Solomon wrote in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He enables you to work to his glory, and then he enables your heart to lie down at night, resting in what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of work. And Lord, it's hard for us to separate the pain and the vexation, the sorrow of work from the goodness of work as you intended to be. Lord, I pray that as we reflect upon this text, that you'll teach us what it means to find meaning and purpose in what Christ has done for us, and therefore to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction in the work that we do for his glory and for the good of others. Help us to be better workers, more satisfied workers, more humble workers. Help us to be workers that reflect your image well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.